1: Welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS Podcast. I'm Theolena Arduci and editor here at the TLS. The article you're about to listen to, part of a series of long reads taken from the TLS, is narrated by the team at NOAA, News Over Audio. You can listen to more TLS articles on the TLS website and in the NOAA app.
2: You are listening to the Lives section of the Times Literary Supplement. We're on the 26th of February, 2021. Joyce Carol Oates, an author and recipient of the Premio Mondial Sino del Duca in 2020, writes No Ideas but in Things. The American Minimalism of Walker Evans. In the words of Walker Evans, I wasn't looking for a thing. Things were looking for me. Of great American photographers for the approximate first half of the 20th century, a distinguished group that includes Alfred Stieglitz, Lewis Hine, Dorothea Lange, Paul Strand, Alfred Eisenstaedt, Imogen Cunningham, Edward Weston, Ansel Adams, Bernice Abbott, among others. It is Walker Evans, who lived from 1903 to 1975, with his characteristically spare, unadorned, deceptively simple, and austerely beautiful photographs of scenes including rural churches, abandoned barns, scrapped automobiles, Derelict wagons, signs, billboards, and posters, barbershops, storefronts, anonymous persons, who has come to embody the quintessential American minimalism we admire in the prose of Sherwood Anderson's short story cycle entitled Winesburg, Ohio, published in 1919, and the early Ernest Hemingway of In Our Time, published in 1924, as well as the poetry of William Carlos Williams, the more vernacular music of Charles Ives and the uncluttered dreamlike realism of Edward Hopper's paintings. William's famous mantra, No Ideas, But in Things, as said in the poem Patterson, published in 1946, is a helpful distillation of Evans' aesthetic of documentary lyricism. Not abstract ideas, indeed, not ideas at all, but objects should be the focus of attention, sometimes decontextualized in the interests of visual purity. Where, given a context, as in the beautifully understated portraiture in the book Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, published in 1941, Evans's celebrated collaboration with James Agee, in which three sharecropper families are represented in formal poses outside their shingle-board houses in Depression-era Alabama, this context is itself minimal, straightforward. The aesthetic ideal is a kind of folk documentation that establishes the authenticity of the past— by a selection of symbolic images linking the viewer to a violent history recollected in tranquility Confederate battlefield monuments, plantation houses in ruins, devastated graveyards. Evans is a master of poetic absences, uniquely detailed domestic interiors that characterize their absent tenants, factories exuding a dispirited ugliness, acres of junked automobiles that startle the eye like fallen human figures. In his words, I like to suggest people sometimes by their absence. I like to make you feel that an interior is inhabited by someone, avoiding excess, pretentious illusions, and distracting mannerisms of the sort that, in the self-consciously artistic photography of his acclaimed contemporary Alfred Stieglitz, Evans particularly disliked, Evans strove to cultivate a Purian style of an almost geometric precision. He said. I was stimulated by Stieglitz. When I got around to looking at photography, I found him somebody to work against. He was artistic and romantic. It gave me an aesthetic to sharpen my own against. A counter-aesthetic. In the public lecture entitled Lyric Documentary, given in 1964 at Yale, where he was a professor of graphic design from 1964 to 1973, Evans expanded on the concept. He said, The real thing I'm talking about has purity, and a certain severity, rigor, sympathy, directness, clarity, and it is without artistic pretension in a self-conscious sense of the word. That's the base of it. They're hard and firm. Simplicity, directness, a repertorial respect for the world as it is observed by the eye without sentiment, irony, or experimentation. This is Walker Evans' lifelong aesthetic as a devoted chronicler of post-Civil War America. Like his contemporary, William Carlos Williams, Evans exudes an obvious love of the American vernacular, the democracy of found objects, and the enchantment of the aesthetically rejected subject. Of the 143 photographic plates preceding Svetlana Alper's 213-page text in the book entitled Starting from Scratch, virtually all are of aesthetically rejected subjects. Faces careworn from poverty, homelessness, mental illness, facades of dilapidated row houses, Depression-era small towns, faded signs and tattered posters. Alpers includes an Evans photograph of a city block in Selma, Alabama in 1936 that replicates Edward Hopper's famous painting called Early Sunday Morning, created in 1930 so much less serenely comforting in Evans's stark neutrals than in Hopper's mellow colors. With an eye for the transcendent detail as attractive as Evans's own, Alpers is an ideal interpreter of his work. She observed that, There is a dignity in a wagon observed straight on, broadside with loving attention. The wheels display a crafted elegance. At first, one might not notice that the farm wagon is a wreck. The wheels are awry, the body or floor broken and twisted out of shape. It is past use. The grasses and low branches mark its abandonment, but they also protect it. In effect, the attentive photograph minimizes loss. And so vividly described by Alpers that we can nearly see the remarkable photograph, she recalls how, In Atlanta, Evans went in and photographed an empty barber shop. Did he come upon this place when looking around the neighborhood of its customers? The interior, empty of people, a pair of vacant barber chairs swung to look away from the mirrors, is suggestive of life that had been there and would be there again. Towels are folded on the arms and headrests of the chairs, and more are waiting on the shelves. The headline of a newspaper tacked to the wall happens to include the name of Eugene Talmadge, the racist Democratic governor of Louisiana, who, among other things, fought against the kind of government program that employed Evans. The neatness of it all, but also the simple poverty of it. It is the honorable nature of poverty that Evans's photograph insists on, with the Talmadge name as an impromptu reminder of another reality of the times. In his long and prolific career, Evans managed to entirely avoid celebrity portraiture. His dignified subjects are, for the most part, Working class, as in the series titled Labor Anonymous on a Saturday afternoon in downtown Detroit. Alper's selection of Evans's photographs isn't strictly chronological, but suggests a subtle pattern, beginning with a striking photograph of 1936 called Corrugated Tin Facade, reaching back to include work of the 1920s, and ending appropriately with a melancholy color photograph of 1973 entitled. Dead end. Alper's interest in the unique work of Walker Evans is an interest in the making of the photographs rather than in their interpretation. Her approach is slow, patient, fastidious, detail oriented, appreciative, and illuminating. If her manner suggests that of an art history professor lecturing as she shows slides, it is conversational and rarely pedagogic. Though she can't resist an occasional brusque aside, Regarding comments made to young Walker Evans by a French instructor she said i quoted in french and shall not translate born in st louis missouri in 1903 to modest privilege walker evans was initially drawn to literature and considered photography the most literary of the arts a highly formative year 1926 to 27 in france awakened in the young Evans an enormous respect for the sharply precisionist prose of Gustave Flaubert and the hallucinatory poetry of Baudelaire. In time, Evans would come to be called the Flaubert of photographers. Baudelaire was equally valued by the young Evans as a kind of god, and indeed he seems to have internalized certain obsessions of Baudelaire's for things cast away, for debris, dirt and cigarette butts on a damaged road by a curbside. In Evans's words, I wasn't very conscious of it then, but I know now that Flaubert's aesthetic is absolutely mine. Flaubert's method I think I incorporated almost unconsciously, but anyhow used it in two ways, his realism and naturalism both, and his objectivity of treatment, the non-appearance of the author, the non-subjectivity. This is literally applicable to the way I want to use a camera, and I do. But spiritually, however, It is Baudelaire who is the influence on me. Evans's pronounced contempt for nature as a subject, he said, Nature bores me as an art form, is less idiosyncratic if we see it as a predilection shared with both Flaubert and Baudelaire. In Evans, useful as a sort of cranky resistance to the greatly acclaimed work of his American contemporary and rival, Ansel Adams, as to the other artists who'd exploited the natural beauty of the American landscape. A landscape by Walker Evans is likely to be a mock landscape, defiled by acres of rusting vehicles. Alpers remarks, perhaps humorously Evans spoke out against nature every chance he had. Perversely, though Evans preferred man made artifacts to natural subjects, he was highly reactionary and dead set against progress. Allegedly, Evans jumped for joy during the Depression when he read of stockbrokers jumping out of windows. The title of one of Evans's photography features for Fortune magazine, Before They Disappear, Alpers notes, is a title that could be applied to almost everything Evans chose to record. Though disapproving of sentimentality and nostalgia, Evans seems to have been obsessed with commemorating the old, writing of himself in the third person for the second edition, published in 1961, of his acclaimed work entitled American Photographs. He notes approvingly, Evans was and is Interested in what any present time will look like as the past, not surprisingly, the individual who so lovingly photographed remnants of the past was an obsessive collector of old postcards. Evans's archive at the Metropolitan Museum of Art contains more than nine thousand, as well as such found objects as worn and rusted roadside signs, even bottle tops. Alpers notes that walls in Evans's residence in Old Lyme. Were covered with objects, and a mass of detrius eventually covered all the available horizontal surfaces of the house. No doubt, Evans's fetishizing of such objects anticipated pop art in its most obvious superficial features. But as Alpers points out, there is really no comparing the reverential nature of Evans's found objects with the playful, paradistic, deeply ironic commentary on American pop culture by Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, Roy Lichtenstein, or Wayne Thiebaud.
1: There will be more from this TLS long read from Noah after a short interlude. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive tls subscription offer exclusive that is to our podcast listeners for just five pounds or five dollars or the equivalent in whatever currency you use you will receive six issues of the tls and that's print and digital so you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mer and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon and Anne Carson so there's really quite a lot to be getting on with go to the-tls.co.uk hyphen forward slash pod to take up this offer
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: The puritanical nature of Evans's art lies in the willful erasure of its creator, the non-subjectivity of Flaubert. Allegedly, Evans once called out to a friend as he took up his camera in a public place, Watch me, I'm going to disappear. Recording the artifacts of a culture rapidly vanishing around him, whether the aftermath of the defeat of the slave-holding South or the industrialization and dehumanization of the urban North, took precedence over self-conscious artistry and experimentation of the kind explored by Stieglitz, Man Ray, Lee Miller, and on occasion, Minor White. Evans preferred to be invisible in his work, as indeed he invisibly photographed unwitting subjects in his controversial Subway Portraits series, created from 1938 to 1941, descending into the New York City subway with a camera hidden inside his coat to take, covertly, more than 600 portraits. In his words, I began to collect people with my eyes in the subway. What more potent metaphor for the photographer than the, as Evans put it, penitent spy and apologetic voyeur, armed with detachment. They are quarry. You alone are in armor. I am stalking as in the hunt. Of the subway portraits, which Alpers finds the strangest that Evans ever made, she observes that there is something eerie about the repetition of so many isolated, pale, fixed faces, most heads topped by a period hat or set on bodies rigidly placed against the windows, their frames, and the signage of a subway car. There is a disconnect between the cameras, and so our, undivided attention, and the lack of anything in return. It is not only their anonymity, but their being unaware of being seen that makes the people look strange. They remind one of haunted shots from newspapers of the period. It's been suggested that Evans saw the modern anonymity of his fellow citizens and the modern anonymity of his own medium. To me, it seems likely that it was something simpler, more basic, that in the strange, withdrawn state of the individuals down in the subway, he found versions of himself. Starting from Scratch is a curious subtitle for a critical work that provides so much evidence for the influences of predecessors on its subject. Evans's realist photography is solidly in the tradition of the great Civil War photographer Matthew Brady, whom Evans acknowledged and much admired, and the great French photographer Eugène Atgay, of whom Evans often spoke as a powerful influence. Indeed, Alpers remarks that Evans was... Overwhelmed by gay. Much of the work of Evans's contemporaries, Dorothea Lang, Helen Levitt, Bernice Abbott, Minor White, Edward Weston, resembles Evans's in its scale, ambition, sympathy for its subjects, and execution. It is not convincing, nor is it necessary, given this plenitude of talent, to argue for Evans's uniqueness as forcibly as Alpers does. A more likely candidate for uniqueness in 20th-century American photography is Ansel Adams. What engages Alpers in the work, starting from scratch, is the nature of photography itself, what might be called its paradoxical relationship to reality. After a distinguished career as an art historian focused on the greatest of European painters, writing books such as Rembrandt's Enterprise, The Studio and the Market, published in 1990, Tiepolo and the Pictorial Intelligence, published in 1994, The Making of Rubens, published in 1996, and The Vexations of Art, Velasquez and Others, published in 2007, Alpers takes up the subject of photography by an American of the 20th century, a first for her, as she acknowledges in her introduction. Indeed, it is the art historian who is boldly starting from scratch in a new field, Alpers was born in 1936. Initially, it was the singularity of the artwork painting that interested Alpers. The making, by contrast, the making of photography isn't about singularity at all, but about the possibility of infinite reproduction, thus infinite variants of an essential image, and infinite interpretations. In a passage considering the distinction between artists who are determined to complete their work and artists who seem instinctively to resist completing it, Alpers is wonderfully revelatory, observing that, in the ongoing nature of his practice, which includes his dismissal of all fine printing, all of Evans's photographs might be likened to drawings in a sketchbook. I have described Evans's striking unwillingness to favor one out of a series of images of the same subject as his acceptance of the inherent repetitiveness or multiplicity of the medium, what is lacking with Evans is something equivalent to the lack of a finished painting by Cézanne. Here is a final twist that brings Cézanne's sense of painting close to Evans' sense of photographs. Cézanne, who famously found finishing a painting next to impossible, is similar to Evans in his reluctance to settle on an iconic print. Both of them rejoiced, and also despaired, in the practice of making images that would in some way be equal to the world. It is really starting from scratch that is a unique work, a close reading of classic photographs by a discerning eye, Alpers's, that conjoins the instructional with the intimate, the scholarship of the historian with the candor of the memoirist. By way of amplifying Evans's photographs, Alpers finds kindred themes and motives in other artists as varied as William Carlos Williams, William Faulkner, Fred Astaire, Elizabeth Bishop, and even Bob Dylan connections that are tenuous in some cases, if not arbitrary, yet fruitful and always interesting. Excellent as much of Starting from Scratch is, the book seems to gather a dramatic momentum as it proceeds, culminating in a brilliant and indeed thrilling final chapter entitled Turning In, in which Alpers considers the phenomenon of late style as it relates to artists other than Walker Evans. In her words— I myself come at the question of late style from a lifetime working on historic European art. The late style of masters like Titian or Rembrandt was a much-cherished and much-studied phenomenon. If artists in general were related to others through the period style in which they worked, what was notable about certain older artists is that they went off on their own, painting in a matter that was independent of others. Think of the individual handling of the paint by Titian and by Rembrandt. Picasso's once-ignored later works might be included under the rubric and also the surprising last works of Miró. The late styles of Atgay and Evans are considered in the following words. They are, in great part, discoveries of the photographer's own pleasure. Nearing the end, each man can be described as playing at losing himself in something he loved. Atgay in landscapes, Evans in manscapes. This richly contemplative book ends with a poignant quote from Evans, from an interview given not long before his death, in which he speaks, with excited enthusiasm, about a new camera he has discovered, the Polaroid SX-70, which reads, Oh, extend my vision and let that open up new stylistic paths that I haven't been down yet. That is one of the peculiar things about it that I unexpectedly discovered. You photograph things you wouldn't think of photographing before. I don't even yet know why, but I find that I am quite rejuvenated by it. You are listening to the Lives section of the Times Literary Supplement, where on the 26th of February, 2021, Joyce Carol Oates, an author and recipient of the Premio Sino Duca in 2020, writes, No Ideas, But in Things, The American Minimalism of Walker Evans. It was read by Adrian Walker for Noah.
1: Thank you for listening. You'll find more audio articles on the TLS website as well as in the NOAA News Over Audio app. And don't forget to listen and subscribe to our weekly show with me and Lucy Dallas.